Okay, do this and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Chapter 19. What's that? Oh, yes, that's right. Thank you for reminding me. Before we start, listen, our friend and sister here, Robin, who had an accident here a couple weeks ago, and many of you were here, she just went home. That was two weeks ago. She just went home last night. Uh, she's under four surgeries, and, but uh, her and Steve are doing well and uh, have amazing faith. <laughs> so uh, it's great to uh, have her back home. Uh, I, I think Olivia and some others are getting ready to launch a meal train So that'll be like in the uh, Calvary Chapel Facebook page. Also, if you're interested and you have some time during the day or even the evening, uh, I want you to see Sarah afterwards, Sarah Zimmer, who gave me the note to make this announcement, uh, because we're going to get some folks together, not every day, but that can go over there and sit with her uh, after her family is gone, maybe during the week. Uh, because Steve still has to work and stuff, even though he works from home and will have to do some errands. So if that's something you're interested in, see Sarah afterwards, and she'll uh, get that put together, okay? Uh, Maybe that'll probably roll out in a couple weeks or so, all right? But she's doing well. Oh, wow. They're a blessing to talk to. I'll, I'll just put it like that. They are amazing people, and we're so sorry that happened to her. Well, okay, turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Do you know now we are in the part of the gospel where Jesus is now in the last week of his life? He's five or six days away from the crucifixion, the trials, the crucifixion. And he is making his way down from Galilee, and he went on the other side of the Jordan in a, oh, time out. Also, Helen's back. Helen Rickard from California. Helen's back, and so you're going to say hi to Helen. She's been at the Bible College this year, and uh, uh, if you have any work for her around the church, okay, go see her. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, back to the service. So we're at the last week of Jesus' life, and he's making his way down from Galilee. He went on the eastern side of the Jordan in Perea, and now he's making a beeline from the Judean wilderness through and up uh, through Jericho and up to Jerusalem. That's where we are. In fact, when we uh, end today, if we get that far, we'll see him moving into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphant or triumphal entry, and uh, we'll, we'll see that today. I want to ask yourself, or at least I ask myself, what would you do if you knew you had one week to live? Would you serve others? Would your concern be for others? Would my concern be for others? Would I be thinking of others? Or would I do all for me? Wow, what a question, right? And Jesus now, in chapter 19, remember, in the previous chapter... He has counseled the rich young ruler. That's going to be important for today. He's counseled the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler just couldn't get over one thing. He liked to do the commandments, some of them. But when it came to, thou shalt have no other gods before me, or I shall not covet. See, there was something. He had an idol, and the idol in his heart was his money. 
and he just couldn't get over it. I mean, he, he was emotional about Jesus. He tried to be obedient to God. But Jesus, knowing man, knowing the hearts of man, remember we talked about that? It's contained in the book of John. Je- Jesus knows what's in all man's heart. He does spiritual surgery on us differently. Your issue may not be my issue. My issue might not be your issue. And this guy's issue was his wealth. And when Jesus said, go and sell everything, he knew it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't let go of what was most important to him, his money. He was sorrowful, and he was very sorrowful, very much sorrowful. We then moved on, and Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and we saw the uh, uh, blind Bartimaeus receive his sight, and we are now coming to a town called Jericho. It says this in God's word. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into the sycamore. He climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him. For he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, uh, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he was gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here, just pray with me, and then we'll dive in. Well, Lord, thanks so much, but we need help to understand and to think on these things. And some of us here are hurting. Some of us here have unforgiveness. Some of of us here may never have come into a relationship with you. There's other things. We might be thinking of relationships or money or bills or what have you. And Lord, even as we read your word, it's clear you want us to come face to face with you personally. And I pray that all of us have that happen for us today by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus now entering and passing through Jericho. You got to know a little bit about Jericho. It's about 17 miles to the east of Jerusalem. It's at the bottom of a hill that's going straight up to Jerusalem. And in these times, it was known as the City of the Palms, This was a route where the northern route from Galilee would come and it would meet a road and the southern route from up, you know, uh, from the south would come out up and they both hit this road and that road would lead to Jerusalem. And so it would go right through Jericho. So this was a place where lots of people traversed. They went through it. And as you might suspect, there were a lot of different characters. There were a lot of different uh, things that were going on. It was a place of commerce, but it was a beautiful place, the City of Palms. Josephus tells us it had an aroma. We used to live in Hawaii. 
Man, one of the things I loved to do, and we lived near them, real near them, walking distance right across the street, was go into the hotels. You know why we love to go into the hotels? Because they had fresh flowers every morning. And if you've never smelled the flowers in Hawaii, oh my, it's amazing. What kind of flowers are they? I don't know. But what's that? Plumeria and whatever. But it was beautiful. And that's what the city of the palms was like. It was aromatic. Some say that you could smell this city in a good way, unlike some of the cities we know now. Uh, 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 that there was an aroma. It was just a beautiful place to go, and it was luxurious in some places. And there's this man named Zacchaeus, which is really interesting because his name means pure, bright, righteous, kind of. Uh, you could uh, uh, get that through the Greek. Zacchaeus, this one who was Jewish who'd become a tax collector. And not only a tax collector, but the chief tax collector. Now folks, this is the seventh time in the book of Luke we've come in contact with the tax collector. All seven times, there's a favorable response to Christ, whether it's a favorable response or somebody getting saved. It's interesting because it's not the religious crowd that Jesus is after. There are a lot of religious people, folks. They're counting on their own righteousness. Now, of course, the Lord can break that down. See, he came to seek and to save that or who was lost. See, in order for a saving to happen... There must be a recognition that we're lost. <laughs> What's that word mean, lost, there in chapter, verse 10? It actually means ruined or destroyed. But think about what happens when something gets lost. It's misplaced. It's out of place. But when you find it, it comes back into use, and you can use it, right? You ever lost your phone? Or your keys? You can't use them. They're out of place. There's nothing. There's, they're no good. But when you find them, oh, wonderful, and you can start your car, and you can go places, or you can call people, or you can text people, or you can look at how many likes you have on Facebook or Instagram. It's amazing. That's a joke. But anyway, when, you, when it's found, it's put back. Look, look. It's put into the stream where it was always intended to be. It's fitful for use. It was no good. <laughs> But now it's being used for what it's tended to be used for. See, that's people who are outside of Christ. Not only that, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God, I think of that laser that those army folks use, that wrath of God is on them. And that's where I was before the Lord came and saved me. So we don't talk about it in some spiritually superior way. That's just what the Bible tells us. We're lost. We have the wrath of God on us. We're ruined or wrecked. But when he comes and saves us, look at this, we come into the place where we were always intended to be. We sang about freedom today. The world thinks freedom is no restraints, under nobody's thumb, nothing, anything like that. Real freedom is doing what you've always been intended to do, and that's to walk with God. That's where you can be free, man. 
Here, this religious guy, this guy named Righteous One or Bright or Pure, think about that now. Think about, I want you to think about what Zacchaeus is going through. He's a chief tax collector, so he's the most hated person in Jericho. That's what this writer is trying to tell you. He's not only the tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. And remember, we've talked about this on several occasions. The tax collectors, although Jewish, were uh, installed by Rome. So think about it. They're Roman puppets. Automatically, your country people, your countrymen hate you. And the Romans hated you because there was no honor. You were doing something deceitful to your countrymen. Here's why. Most extra-biblical sources tell us that these tax collectors... It was sort of like a franchise, like you'd buy Subway or something in a certain area. You'd have the tax collecting job in a certain area. The Romans didn't care. You had to get, give them whatever, per month or per year, this amount of money. If you made this amount of money, they didn't care. And so there were a lot of different taxes that the Jews had to pay. And they would swindle people to take advantage of that. They'd have their own franchise. And apparently, Zacchaeus is the sales manager of the tax collectors, which means not only are the tax collectors taking off the top, they know they got to pay the chief tax collector. So he's taking money. He's hated. They hate him. He, he, on, on all sides of his life, he's getting it. Are you catching this? There's nowhere where he can go where he's safe from scorn and ridicule and bitterness and anger. He, everywhere he goes, he can't go out and get a, you know, a, a LaCroix without being ostracized. Everyone hates him. You think about that? His parents must have. Listen, they named him pure or righteous. This guy didn't live up to his name. Are you, are you catching that? He'd had regrets Something in him had said, this is not right. I can't believe my life has spiraled all this way out of control. I have all the money I need, and yet I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I can't take it anymore. I've shamed me. I've shamed my parents. I've shamed the Lord. I don't feel good about where my life has gone. Catching that? Anybody relate? This one Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and the Bible tells us here, not just we have to guess, he was rich. Now that's interesting because we just got done talking, or the writer just got done talking with us about the rich young ruler, true? So it's not that rich people can't be saved or have a relationship with God. We're going to learn that today. It's just that it's really, really, really difficult. Look at this. He was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was. Okay, Sunday school teachers, you've been teaching it wrong forever. He didn't go to see Jesus. That's an important distinction. He went to see who Jesus was. There was something about Jesus, his character, his humility, his meekness, which means power under control. And he'd heard of this, and he'd learned of it, And he was intrigued. He sought him out, and he wanted to see him. No, he didn't just go to see Jesus like he was some political guy coming down the parade route 
No, he, he wanted to see who Jesus was. You see, that's why around here, hopefully, you've caught this before. If you want to bless yourself in your devotions, go study about the attributes of God through God's word. Go find out who God really is, not who you think he is. Go see him in his word, his omnipotence and omniscience and all power and majesty and justice and wrath and fairness and kindness and goodness and mercy and grace and on and on and on and on you could go. You could spend a lifetime just doing that. Don't just go to see Jesus like he's some famous singer or something. When you go to see Jesus, go to see him for who he is. Oh, Lord, that we would have a bigger vision of who you are and who, who we are without you. Here, Zacchaeus, this one who'd fallen short, that's kind of a pun, because the Bible tells us he was a short guy. He was a short man. That's important to the story. Important to the story because apparently there's a big crowd here this day. And they're following him. Now think about it. If there's a big crowd, he ain't comfortable with any part of the crowd. There's nobody that likes him, and he's famous. I wonder if he even got bruised and battered. <laughs> what are you doing here with us kind of stuff, right? How in the world did he know what Jesus was like or became intrigued by Jesus? I don't know this for sure, so... Time out. I'm taking my own little rabbit trail here. And you can take this for what it's worth. See, there was a disciple named Levi. You know him better as Matthew. He dealt with these issues, the very same issues, because he was a tax collector up north. I wonder, I just wonder, just put this in there. I know it's my own thing, but you put this there. I wonder if at the uh, annual meeting of the Occupied Territories Tax Collectors meeting, <laughs> Levi got up and said, this is the Messiah. And you should see some of the things that he's done. There's healings. There's fish in nets that weren't there before. But more importantly than that, there's this one who claims he is God. And oh, by the way, he is God. He has the power to forgive, listen, sin. All guilt and all shame. Now think about this man's life. Something's gotten to him. He's named righteous or pure or bright, and yet his life hasn't measured up, not only just in height, but in what he thought, he had expectations for his life. And even though he was rich and had all the stuff, it wasn't, he, he knew he was not where he was supposed to be. Spiritually, emotionally, socially, everywhere, he knew it. And he wanted to go see who Jesus is or was. So he ran ahead, and what did he do? He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Now think about that. What do little kids do? Moms, you ever get nervous when your little boys or little girls are up the tree? They love to climb trees, man. That's what little ones do. 
Here, he's bounced around like a pinball in the crowd. They don't like him. The crowd is kind of keeping him from seeing Jesus. He's short, yes, but he's fallen short in all of his expectations. And so he knows somebody has told him, he's heard, and now he's going to see. He's got this one chance. Jesus is passing by as he's marching to his death with the the multitude and the disciples. I'm not missing it, he says. I'm going to run ahead like a little kid, and I'm going to climb up the short mulberry tree that's big and bushy. I'm going to do that big this way, wide. I'm going to climb up there so I could just get a glimpse of who he is. You see the desperation? Something's happened in his heart. There's a curiousness. There's something about Jesus that he's seen or heard, and he knows, and his ears are now been tickled, but he he doesn't just have his ears tickled. You catch it? He does something. The Bible tells us that he, we are, or excuse me, he rewards those who diligently seek him. I mean, diligently seek him. And the funny part is there's a gazillion Christians in the United States who say they seek him, but just have one of their favorite hobbies come up sometime. See how quick they're there to out the door. Something fun. Nothing wrong with hobbies. We all have them. We all do them. But is the Lord first in our lives as we realize what we see and hear in the word that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again for our sins. And when we see that, would we do anything to see him? Well, he goes up a tree to see him. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that he goes up a tree to see him? Where, folks... Where do we get the most clarity in life? When we look at the tree. When we're supported by the tree. When we're propped up by the tree. The cross of Calvary for us. But for him, a tree as Jesus was passing by. Listen, have you ever lost perspective on something? You ever lost? Oh my gosh, I want those. Man, I got to have that car. I know it's $48,000 and I budgeted $21,000. But I mean, come on, I love that car. (laughs) All my friends have the car. Everybody down at the law firm has that kind of a car. Oh, man, it's easy to lose perspective. Well, why does they got married and I'm not married yet? Or they have kids and I don't have those kids yet. Or they've been promoted and I don't have... Boy, it is so easy to lose perspective. But what gains or takes our perspective and puts it right back in line. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. When we recognize all that Christ has done for us, see, we can see clearly now. We should make that a song. Young people have no idea here, right? We can see clearly, and so him, as he's short in stature. Think about it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible tells us. I got news for you. If you're sitting here, you're a sinner. So am I. We're sinners. The Bible says it. We're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God, both in nature and in deed. We have a sin nature. And the only thing that makes us stable 
and clear in our whole life is when we surrender our life to what Jesus did at the tree. It's the tree that makes us see clearly. Well, he is there and he sees Jesus. And what's really interesting is, because some of you are uncomfortable, maybe in TV land or maybe right here, some of you might be uncomfortable if you think about the theological implications of what I've just been saying. Wait a minute, do I pursue God or does God pursue me? We'll keep reading. So when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. You see that? Jesus knows. He's got his finger on the pulse of each of us. He knows what we need. And this guy needed salvation. And guess what Jesus said to him? Is this amazing or what? He called him by his name. Hey, bright spot. Hey, righteous one. Think about that. You know that the Bible says that we're sheep you might not like that, but we are sheep. And for those who come into the fold of Christ or by Christ, the great shepherd, listen, the sheep are known by their names. He knows us by our names. We know his name and he knows our name. Don't you love it? Seriously, don't you love it when somebody knows your name? You feel valued. You feel chosen. You feel loved. Oh, I'm in trouble because I forget names all the time. <laughs> but we love it, don't you, when somebody calls us by our name and the Lord knows you. And here, look, Zacchaeus, righteous one. <laughs> I know. He knows. You think you didn't measure up. You're short in stature. You had to go up a tree. You've fallen short in your life. You know it. I know you know it, but you can be righteous again or can be righteous. Make haste and come down. If you'll come down and meet with me, if you'll come to me for today, listen to this. Can you believe this one? You probably read this a lot of times and never remembered this. At least I did. Clear your whole schedule, Zacchaeus, because I'm coming to your house. And the phrase here is means I'm staying for a while. <laughs> See, that's where a lot of people don't like it. We've had certain presidents in our lives who love to just compartmentalize stuff. No offense. I love to compartmentalize stuff, don't you? Lord, I, yeah, I love to come to this, but you're not having my TV viewing watching stuff. You can't have my Netflix, Lord. You can't have my secular music. You, you can't have my drinking. You can't have my sex. You can't have my phone. I'm not bringing you home. I'll come to the church. I'll say praise the Lord. I'll put my arm. I might even hug somebody, give them, give them a smile. But take you home? Uh-uh. That's my sanctuary, we say. Jesus gave Zacchaeus no option. You get it? He said, you come down with me. We'll link up, and I'm going to come stay at your house. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, when he comes in grace, we can't compartmentalize anymore. He's our all in all. He's the air that we breathe. He's everything to us. He's our all in all. He invades everything in the best way, in the greatest way. He invades our money, our time, our resource, our hobbies, our sex life, everything. That's Jesus. He comes to our house. You can't Keep him at bay. 
By the way, I started this by saying some of you are uncomfortable. Do we pursue God or does God pursue us? It's funny. The whole time, Zacchaeus thought he was pursuing the Lord, and we should pursue the Lord. Jesus was pursuing him. The Bible tells us we only love him because he first loved us. He's the great pursuer. You ever read that poem? I hope I have it here. The Hound of Heaven. Hound of Heaven, written by Francis Thompson, who uh, was a follower of Christ and struggled through poverty and poor health, and he even struggled through addiction to heroin. And he wrote, or opium, excuse me, which, by the way, back then uh, in the, uh, I think it's the 1800s, could be, was sold over the counter in some places. Anyway, in the depths of despair, uh, Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven would take me about 25 minutes reading to recite it. But he wrote this in one stanza. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. See, that was what he said. Uh, Romans 3 tells us that none seek after God, although Zacchaeus here was curious about God. Thompson writes that in his poem, and then he says this, Ah, fondest, at the end, the last stanza, it's God speaking, Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, the whole time I am he whom thou seekest. I am he whom thou seekest. In other words, I've been pursuing you all along. (laughs) Here, he diligently seeks. He gets up in the tree so he can see. He understands that he's fallen short. The Bible tells us that that's the place to start. Recognize that you're poor in spirit. You're a spiritually bankrupt person who comes to the Lord. Zacchaeus goes, oh, great, I'll come down and everything will be great. But Jesus says, not only are you going to come down, I'm going to come live at your house. That's what we say when we surrender our lives to the Lord. Lord, you have access everywhere. Of course he has access everywhere. So he makes haste and he comes down and look how he received Jesus. There was instant joy. Now think about it. He's the richest dude in Jericho. He's going, in one sense, from being the greatest worldly outcast to be with another band of outcasts. But the Lord did something in there where it didn't matter. And he gave him peace and joy and love and courage and strength and forgiveness. And here's something else. Notice he climbed a tree. He's a dignified guy who laid it down. He was humble like a child. We read in the last chapter, unless you're like a child... You can't receive the kingdom of God. And here it is for your reading pleasure. So he received him joyfully. Isn't it great when you come home when they're little? They're so happy to see you. 
When they get older, not so much, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, they are, they are, they are. Right? When they're little and they come and they, you receive, and it's joyful, and then they saw it, they all complained. Listen, when they saw it, who? The multitudes, the religious people, the people who were following and walking along and questioning Jesus, they go, oh, shoot. See, all they can think about is the terrible stuff this guy has done. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Folks, the writer here is trying to tell you in not so subtle way, the real gross thing in life is spiritual self-righteousness. Thinking that you got it all handled and that you're better than others and that just this, that. You do this many Bible studies, they only do that many. This many, uh, uh, you know, much money in the, in the box. This, listen, it's spiritual ickiness. Is that a word? It just, it just puts a, it just makes your heart. You ever encountered somebody like that? Better yet, you ever been like that? Watch it. Jesus hates it. He's come now to seek and to save and that which was lost. In order to find lost people, you go where lost people are, folks. You don't stay in a spiritual, happy, sappy Christian cocoon. You got to go out into the highways and byways of life and bring people who are lost and share the gospel with them. Sometimes that gets gritty and raw because life is gritty and raw. Jesus goes uh, back to his house. What a big scandal, man. Marching on to his death. I just got to tell you, without the Lord in my life, thinking about all that I had to go do and it's my last time, first of all, I probably wouldn't have been on the road. I'd have probably been skedaddled somewhere. Well, second of all, I wouldn't have been thinking of others. Here he takes the time for the most hated person in one city. Wow. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, <laughs> which means he was bowed down. He stood. Do you see that? And said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half. I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Do you see where there's repentance here and confession of sin? He knows, he knows, uh, that is, uh, he has cheated people and he's fallen way short of what God's standard is and he is repenting. And the reason we know he's really repentant is because his actions say what is going on inside of him. See, a lot of people just say, Oh, sure, man. Read the back of the magazine, say the words, then they go live like hell. Here, real repentance, real agreeing with God, I have not measured up to you, Lord. You're right. I confess it to you. I agree with you that I am who you say I am, a sinner in need of grace. But oh, now that I've found you, Lord, I can receive you joyfully and come into your presence and you'll make your home with me. It actually says that in John. And oh, by the way, Lord, now I'm, as I move out in repentance, look what I'll do. I'm going to just, I, I'm going to give my stuff to the poor. You don't even have to tell me. 
I know I should do that. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give fourfold. Now, this is fascinating. Here's why. Because he goes beyond what was legally necessary under the law. Did you catch what I just said? See, if you read from the law, only if robbery was deliberate and violent was a full forward restitution necessary. You can look that up in Exodus 22. If it's an ordinary robbery and the original goods were not restorable, then you'd double the value that had to be repaid. That's in Exodus 22, verse 4. If there was a voluntary confession made and voluntary restitution, you just had to pay the value of the original goods plus one-fifth. That's in Leviticus 6. Great book, by the way. You get what's happening here? He gives, and he gives, because money isn't the most important thing to him. See, it comes full circle here. God puts these two stories together to show you it's not impossible. If these things are presence, you see who Jesus is clearly. You recognize you've fallen short of the glory of God. You come and you bow down in repentance and confession of sin. But then, look, look, this is where we fail. And then, gosh, our, our lives change because of who Jesus is. Our lives must show change. And here, you'll see it right here. Listen to this. I'm going to bring another theological conundrum to you. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. What does that mean? He's Jewish, right? Because most of the Jewish people must have been saying, he thinks he's really Jewish, man. Look at him. He's betrayed us. And Jesus says to him, salvation has come to this house. Look, all the components are needed there for salvation because he's also a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to say, uh, seek and to save that which was lost. Now, there's a whole thing packed in there. Let me show it to you. Turn to James chapter 2. I'm going to give you the uh, tense part here at the beginning. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, get over to verse 17. This is the one that makes uh, evangelicals really uncomfortable. Shouldn't, though. Wait a minute, he's a child of Abraham. He's a son of Abraham. Okay, let's, let's investigate about Abraham. Thus, also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Wait a minute. For the last seven years I've been coming here, you've said it's faith by grace, or you know, salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes, that's true, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. But there is scripture that says, thus also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Keep going. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, you believe that there was one God, you do well. Even the devils believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, what faith without works is dead? Keep going. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You go, wait a minute. What have you been teaching us for the last several years? Well, hold on. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Abraham, the father of 
the Israelites or the Jews, the father of the Jews. Look at chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, here it comes, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. By the way, where does that come from? That comes from Genesis 15, verse 6. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So which is it? It seems like the Bible is in contradiction. Oh, not at all. First of all, you probably should know that Paul and James are fighting two different battles. There's a thing called legalism and a thing called licentiousness. Legalist people says, uh, you know, oh, if we do, you know, if I looked at you know, this person wrong, or I said this just with a high tone of voice, oh my gosh, I'm going to be condemned. And Paul's battling that. But there's another group of people in the church that are licentious. Wait a minute, they find out. You mean God forgives me for everything? Well, let's go do everything. And then we'll ask for forgiveness later. And James is battling that. And so, which are true? Well, both of them are true. Because the Bible is clear, you're saved by faith, by the grace of God. Jesus plus nothing is what saves you. So it's not faith and works, and it's not faith or works, but folks, it is a faith that works. When you're moved to saving faith, your life goes differently. It goes diametrically opposed, it is diametrically opposed to what it was before. The things you think, the things you watch, the things you spend your money on, the things you do, they just begin to fall away. As you fill yourself up with the light and life of Christ, the dark things begin to fall away. It's not that you're earning your way to heaven. No way. It's that you've become a new creation in Christ. You were a slave to sin, but the Bible tells us now we're slaves to righteousness. So not only do we enjoy right standing with God because of the blood of Jesus, you've been justified and his righteousness has been imputed to you, but now you want to do the right things. And that's unearned. But the Bible is clear that you surrender your life to Christ your life will change by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God as you become a new creation. And now, you see what Jesus says? Look at this. And now what Jesus says is that he's going to take you. Oh, this, this is one of the great themes of the Bible. He's going to take you and put you into the part of the game of life for where you were always intended to be, walking with him. And that's what it means to be found. The Bible tells us that we should diligently seek him, but the Bible also tells us that he is doing the seeking. Isn't that beautiful? He is the true hound of heaven. Now, one other thing. I'm going to read this, and we're going to talk about this. 
and we'll close for the day. As they heard these things, verse 11, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now listen, there is a very famous similar parable in Matthew 25. And I want you to, before we read this, remember the difference. In Matthew 25, the rich guy who was doing the giving gave different amounts to the people. And they were supposed to do stuff while he was away. Got it? Read this now. A certain nobleman went into the far country to, for, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. The idea here is each person got one mina, okay? They gave ten total. Each person got the same amount, one mina. And it, look, underline in your Bible, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina, has, or mina, however you say it, has earned ten minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, uh, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, they only talks about three of the ten, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. I hid it. I kept it safe. I didn't invest it in any way. For I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming... I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. What a parable. What's interesting about this is this is probably the only parable that's rooted in history. There was a guy named Herod Antipas. He was of the Herodic, or Herodian dynasty. Excuse me, Herod the Great uh, started the dynasty. And then there was uh, uh, kingdoms that he left to his next of kin. Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Archelaus, who was another one of his kin. And this division had to be ratified by the Romans. And apparently, Archelaus, to whom Judea had been left, went to Rome to pursue Caesar to allow him to come into this inheritance. He was campaigning over in Rome. And the Jews sent an embassy of 50 or so men to Rome to inform Augustus that they didn't want to have him as uh, king, even though he was uh, confirmed as inheritance. So this parable is rooted in the history that these people know. Isn't that interesting? And he says something here. You're all going to get the same stuff that's different than the other 
parable. In the other parable, it's clear what he's talking about. It's clear that he's talking about your giftings, the things that God has enabled you with, the things that you, uh, you know, he's put on your heart to do, like mine, you know, like organizing stuff. No, that's a joke. I don't have that gift, but other people have that gift. Maybe you have the gift of playing the guitar or cleaning or visiting people or writing letters or whatever. Whatever God has given you that you're good at, are you using those for the kingdom? That's Matthew 25. Here, he gives us all the same thing. And what possibly could that same thing be? I think one of the uh, great clues to that is in 1 Corinthians 4.1. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible tells you that, listen to this, you're a steward of the mysteries of God. What's the mystery of God? It's something that started in the Old Testament and started ramping up and advancing. And what was it? That one is coming. The Messiah is coming And then the Messiah did come, and they wrote about it, and now we have uh, the Bible that explains God's good news. And I don't care who you are. You're cleaning the toilets. You clean, you know, you do the single uh, person's ministry where you fix cars, you play music. I don't care what you do. We all have been given the same thing. By the way, Ephesians 5.16 tells us another thing that each one of us have been given. I got news for you, some of you. You can't fit any more things into the 24 hours. You only have 24 hours. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 that we are to be people as Christians who are not only stewards of the mysteries of God... Are you able to rightly divide the word and share it with another person? You say, well, I don't know. I, you know, I can't do it like some apologist. Or, yeah, yeah, but can you just be a witness of what Christ has done for you? You think Zacchaeus is getting into whether he was called or God called him? He just knows it's over his life of shame. Do you think blind Bartimaeus is, wants to get into a theological debate about the five points of Calvinism or something like that? No, no, he, he was blind, but now he can see. And it's all because of Jesus. You can be a witness. You're a steward of the mystery of God. So am I. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says we've all been given the same amount of time. Well, it says redeem the time, and we know that we've been given only 24 hours currently So he's asking you, look at this, look at this. What do you do with your time? Oh, man, I can be the biggest waster of time. Anybody else think this? Oh, my goodness. I can watch ESPN for one hour and see all the highlights and do it three more times in a row, and it it don't bother me. My wife says, you already seen this highlight. I'm like, I don't care. I want to see it again. Some of us get on Facebook And you're creeping on all the people you want to creep on, right? <laughs> and before you know it, it's, you know, you know, you were supposed to have your kids to school and they're tardy and, you know, missed lunch. <laughs> and now you might bring them for the afternoon. <laughs> Maybe they'll make the school bus home. <laughs> or Instagram or, listen, folks, nobody likes 
hobbies more than I do. We can get involved in the hobbies. Nothing wrong with it. We need to do hobbies. and do. We can get involved in hobbies that can just overwhelm our lives to where we're not laying it all out for the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says. Somebody asked me today, this is a funny joke, by the way, are you good in business? And my response was no. <laughs> but Jesus says, when I'm away, here's what I want you to do. See, the mission never changed. Do business till I come. Do my business. My business. I'm entrusting you the mysteries, the the mysteries of God. This, I want you to be a steward with my gospel. That means I'm entrusting it to you. I just got to tell you, if I was running the show, I'm not sure I'd entrust it to me. But what else does he say? He says, I'll give you a comforter, a helper, a paraclete, an empowerer, one, a dunamis, one who has power, who come and live inside of you. And if you'll walk in the spirit, listen, you will get tired physically, but you will never burn out. And what's amazing about this is as we share the gospel and love people and serve people and give them food and give them clothes, all in the name of Jesus, whatever God calls you to do, we're just laying it all out on the line. We're, we're not uh, doing hobbies first or money first or 401ks first. No, we're doing the Lord's business first. That's what we're doing. We're doing the Lord's business first while he's gone. We do get tired, but you just don't run out. You just don't run. You'll be empowered for this. You're going to do his business. You're going to be all about his business. If I took your checkbook, don't give me your checkbook, but if I did, if I took your Mac card, would the stuff in there reflect doing business with the Lord or would it be doing business with trivial stuff? If I looked in your mail, the stuff that was coming in your mail, does it reflect doing business with God or, or, or the trivial stuff of life? He says, do business till I come. And what's amazing about the promise here, for those who love to do the Lord's business, we only love to do the Lord's business because of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts. Listen to this. He doesn't say, you're going to just do it for a while, and then I want you to take a break. He says, no, no, no. If you love to do the Lord's business, until I come, I'm going to give you more to do. There's no retirement there's no taking years off. I mean, do we need rest? Of course. The Lord tells us we need rest. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying be busy. I'm saying do the Lord's work. His business. His stuff. You, we sang it, and I were made for him. That's Colossians 1.16. He's not made for us. We've got it backwards here, folks, in the American church. We're made for him. So here, here as we move on out of here, what does this say to us? Does it say do better? That's not what I'm trying to tell you. Don't do better. If you try to do better, you'll be so frustrated. You'll run out by tomorrow night. You'll be wiped. I'm saying keep abiding. The Bible says as we abide in Christ and he abides in us, he fills us with love and joy and strength and peace. We get tired, yes, take a rest, relax, get some sleep, take the Sabbath, yes. But then when we go back again, are we thinking about the things of the Lord or are we thinking about our own personal agendas? 
Ask the Lord by his spirit to replace that in your life. And then make the changes. Are, are you so filled up in your schedule that you have no room for the Lord? If you say, if anybody here says to me, I have no time for devotions, I'm going to flick you. No, I don't know. <laughs> well, you don't have any time for devotions, but you got time for Netflix and social media and blah, blah, blah. But you don't have time for, no, I got to run my kids around. Well, get up and do it. Why? Not because of being better. It's not about being better. Oh, I'm a bad Christian. I need to be better. No, it's a heart response of love to the one who walked when he was dying and to stop for the lost. And you and I were lost without him. Let's pray. Well, Lord... I thank you so much. I thank you so much. We thank you together here as brothers and sisters. That you considered us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you stopped and passed by and you, we sought you, but you were really the one seeking us. Oh, Lord, what joy, what pleasure it is to serve you. Lord, if there's anybody here that's never done that, I just pray that they come up after and we talk. Lord, bless this day and always help us to see where it is we can do business for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, one other thing before I go, before we worship one more song. This is a very interesting extra-biblical thing. Some say, some of the early church fathers say Zacchaeus was a very prominent Christian leader after this and ended up being the pastor of the church in Caesarea, which is the beach town, later to be succeeded by none other than Cornelius the Centurion. That's from church history. It's not in the Word of God, but isn't that interesting? The point being is God brought him to a place where he was a bright spot. Isn't that great? All right, God bless you guys.